most of you will recognize the name John D. Rockefeller. He was that famous titan of standard oil. He is considered the most uh, affluent American ever and the richest person in modern history. If his wealth were adjusted for today's dollars, he would be worth over $400 billion. Over $400 billion. He had three simple rules for getting rich. The first was go to work early. Some of you who are employers are saying, amen, I wish that, that, uh, <laughs> that my employees would get that. And then stay at work late. You might not be quite as eager about that because of overtime rules. But his third rule was find oil, and that always helps, doesn't it? If you're, if you're going to get rich, it sure helps to strike oil. As Christians, how do we think about wealth? How do we think about money, about material possessions? How do we handle money? Honestly, when compared to the vast majority of the people worldwide, probably everyone in this room could be called wealthy. But when you compared us to, to the people who, who live across the world, should Christians strive to be wealthy? What should guide us in our pursuit of money? How do we handle what we have? These are the questions we'll think about this morning as we look in James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to take a pew Bible. Uh, turn to page 1073 and, and you can follow along. Now in this passage, James writes to Jewish Christians to warn them of the dangers of misused riches. There were wealthy landowners in Israel who often took advantage of, of those who worked for them, of their servants. And we'll see that James challenges Christians to behave differently. Let's look at James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Well, this passage was written to encourage Christians who were suffering under the hand of the unjust wealthy. It was also written to exhort Christians regarding the use of money and the dangers of misused wealth. So James addresses the fate of the wealthy who lived wickedly, who did not know the Lord. And he uses their example to teach those within the church how to, to handle money. And in this passage, we see the danger of making money our master. What are the dangers of making money our master? Well, according to James, we see five dangers. First, recognize the danger of disappearance. Recognize the danger of disappearance. James begins this passage like an Old Testament prophet. He's blunt and he's bold. He urges the wealthy to weep and to wail. To weep and to wail over the horrors that they will soon experience. Their judgment is so certain that the only proper response is mourning. That's what James says. In verses 2 to 3, James says that their wealth had rotted like a bushel of apples gone bad. So their wealth was ruined. He says, your expensive clothes are of no value. They're moth-eaten. Then James speaks of their silver and gold, and he says it's corroded. It's rotting away. Now, James speaks in the past tense 
to underscore the certainty of these events. They would occur. In fact, James suggests that on the day of judgment, these ruined riches, these wiped out wardrobes would all be there to testify against the unjust wealthy, against those who had made money their master. Of course, James knew that gold didn't literally rust. But what James is saying is that which we never expect to decay most certainly will. That which we think will will last and last and last, James says it will not, particularly in light of the judgment, in light of eternity. Have you ever played one of those game machines where there's a whole bunch of stuffed animals or some kind of gadgets, video games, or different kinds of toys, and you take the robotic arm and you try to grab one of those, and then you try to get, if, if you're, if you're lucky enough to be able to pick up one of the items, you try to guide that hand back to the slot that will enable you to, to, to keep that, whatever it is that you got, the stuffed animal or the, the gadget of some sort. Have you ever played those? Well, when I was a kid, I decided I was going to win. So I put in quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter, and guess what? I ran out of money, and I came home with nothing. James wants us to understand that if we're chasing after wealth and we're chasing after more and getting more and getting more, that eventually we're going to find ourselves with nothing in the end. That wealth, that money that we've made so important in our lives, it'll fade away. It will be gone. So the question that James leaves us with is how are we going to handle money? How are we going to respond when money begins to to catch our attention and begins to to grasp our heart. Well, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Skip, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skipping to verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, Jesus emphasized the fact that earthly goods are passing away. The Christian is wise to focus on spiritual things instead of the accumulation of more and more and more. At this point, it's helpful to think about what the Bible teaches as a whole about money and riches. And so I'm gonna survey and highlight just a few of the Bible's teachings on riches. First, God owns everything. God owns everything. We see this in Psalm verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 1. Next, individuals may own property. Individuals may own property. There are some who have argued that Christianity requires Christians to sell everything and, and no one should own anything. But, but it's all right for individuals to own property. For one thing, the Eighth Commandment makes this clear. Exodus 20, verse 15, do not steal. That implies the fact that, that we may own uh, property. Next, people are stewards of that which God ultimately owns. We see this in Genesis 1.28, the earliest chapter uh, of Genesis. Next, work is a part of God's good plan for us. We see that in Genesis 2, verse 15. Work is a means of getting material things. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Next, it's all right to enjoy the work of our hands. We see this, for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 through or verses 12 and 13. 
Next, we should pay what we owe, including taxes. Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. We have a responsibility to care for the poor, to help the poor. We see that in Proverbs 14, verse 31. Having wealth isn't wrong. In fact, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, there were many wealthy Old Testament saints. But the wealthy are expected to be generous and the wealthy are expected to put money in its proper place, to let the Lord be their master and not money their master. Nowhere, as I mentioned a moment ago, does the Bible command communism or anything like communism. Uh, It doesn't prohibit private ownership. Some have argued that the example of the early Christians or the first church in Acts 2 suggests that Christians shouldn't own property, that that Christianity is really a religion that that promotes uh, some form of communism or, or socialism. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 was a remarkable demonstration of the Spirit moving on the hearts of these first believers. And they, they were so moved by the Spirit of God that they, that they, sold, what, they, they sold much of their property and they, they shared with others. So Scripture never mandates anything like communism, but it always mandates generosity and care and concern for others. So what does this mean in our lives? Recognize that the stuff of this world is passing away. So don't allow money or material possessions to become your master. Set your heart on knowing Jesus. Set your heart on loving the Lord. Set your heart on helping others and sharing Christ with others. It's not wrong to make money. It's a good thing to make money as long as it's done honestly, but it is wrong to make making money your passion. That's what's wrong, to make material possessions your master. So we've seen that money and material things will pass away. Second, recognize the danger of defrauding others. We see this in verse four. The wealthy had allowed their desire for more and more and more to lead them to take advantage of their workers. Those who mowed and and who harvested, they'd been cheated of the rightful wages. Returning to the theme of Judgment Day, James says that these withheld wages are crying out. And then James says that the voice of the laborers themselves is crying out to God, and God has heard. In verse 4, James calls God the Lord of hosts. And this is the name that refers to God's power. He is the commander of the hosts of heaven. And so why, while the poor here on earth Those who are being defrauded here on earth may seem ignored. God is assuring believers that he does not ignore the cry of those who are hurting, those who are being taken advantage of. God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, hears. He takes note. It was once said, those who live for money spend the first half of their lives getting all they can from everybody else. And the last half of their lives trying to keep everybody else from getting what they have gotten from them and they find no pleasure in either half. You see, there's a real danger in being so driven to get more and more that we lie, that we cheat, that we take advantage of others, that we do all sorts of things that are dishonoring to God because we've got to get just a little bit more. In Deuteronomy 24 verses 14 to 15, God gave commands to the nation of Israel. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. 
You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Proverbs 22.1 says this, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So realize that our character and our concern for the good of others is far more important than making more and more. So choose to do what's right financially. Don't compromise character to get cash. Don't let greed keep you from from treating employees fairly. Commit to pay your employees a fair wage and to treat them well. Don't let the desire to get more overwhelm your desire to be a person of character and to be a person who's generous. So Christians must avoid the temptation to defraud others. Third, recognize the danger of self-indulgence. The danger of self-indulgence. It doesn't make any sense in our culture today, does it? Because in our culture, everyone is encouraged to take care of themselves and live life to the max for yourself, meet your own needs, do whatever you want. And yet the Bible's going to warn against that kind of an attitude, that kind of a mindset. So while their laborers had nothing, in contrast, James says the wealthy here lived in luxury. They had not just met their own needs. They had pampered themselves. They had lived extravagantly, particularly in comparison to their laborers. Ironically, James says that they had fattened themselves up. Just as these wealthy folks would have had a fattened calf or or fattened calves prepared for, for a feast, one of the many luxurious feasts they would throw, James says they're fattening themselves up for the day of judgment that coming day of judgment that is inevitable. I read the story of two women who who saw each other at a party after having not seen each other for many years. And uh, after the, the usual exchange of greetings, one of the ladies said, I see that diamond. That is the most beautiful diamond that you're wearing I, I've ever seen. And the other lady responded and said, it, it's an unusual diamond. It's the Callahan diamond. And it comes with the Callahan curse. And the lady said, what do you mean the Callahan curse? And the other woman answered, well, I mean, Mr. Callahan, of course. (laughs) Now, when striving for more and more and more, there are often unintended consequences. For this lady, the unintended consequence of her desire for more and better and greater, well, it was an unfortunate relationship with what probably was a greedy husband. What James wants us to see is that if we insist on living a life of self-indulgence, there are going to be consequences for that. This is not the way people live who love the Lord Jesus. When we, when we strive to, to pamper ourselves constantly. Now, again, it's not wrong to enjoy the work of our hands. We, we, we mentioned that earlier, earlier from, from Ecclesiastes 3. The problem is that these folks constantly lived that way. They lived in complete luxury. But who cared about the people who were working for them? It was no concern. So to avoid self-indulgence, Paul challenged wealthy Christians in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So be careful about over-pampering yourself, spoiling yourself and spoiling your family. There's a danger of becoming self-centered, of ignoring God, of becoming blind to the needs of others. Strive to give generously to God. In the Old Testament, a tithe was required. That's 10% of of one's income. There were other offerings as well, but a, a tithe was required. Now, in the New Testament, we don't see the command to tithe, but we expect to give no less because Jesus calls us to greater devotion, not lesser devotion. God calls us to be generous with that which he gives us. It's a way to to curb our greediness. It's a way to recognize that we're just stewards. So strive also to help those in need. One way, perhaps if you you know someone who's struggling, is, is to try to help them find a job. Or if you're able to, to provide them with a job, with, with, with fair wages. At any rate, we've seen the danger of becoming self-indulgent. Fourth, recognize the danger of increasingly destructive deeds. The unjust wealthy had harmed others. That's what James says in verse 6. To get more, they had done all sorts of things. The word for condemned here in verse 6 is often associated with the legal system. In other words, the wealthy had power. And they could run over those who had less. Their wealth had even led them to murder in some instances. The godly behavior of the righteous then becomes another witness against the wealthy. That the godly were not retaliating. They were not responding in kind. And so their godly behavior becomes another witness against these who were driven by wealth. Now, an example of this is Bernie Madoff. You you remember him. He's in prison serving a 150-year sentence. He was convicted of running the largest Ponzi scheme in history. He stole billions of dollars from investors. Over the course of his life, Madoff had been a philanthropist. He was known as a, a very generous man, giving sizable amounts of money to people, serving on nonprofit boards. But eventually, Madoff's game caught up with him. He was arrested, and the scheme cost hundreds and hundreds of investors their livelihood. Exactly two years after Madoff's arrest, his oldest son was found dead in his apartment as a result of suicide. Do you think that Bernie Madoff planned to spend the last years of his life in a prison cell? Do you think that he had hoped that his family would be known and associated with having run the largest Ponzi scheme in history? Do you think he hoped or ever imagined that exactly two years after his rest, his son would commit suicide? No, Madoff didn't plan for any of those things. What happened? Madoff's passion to get more and more and more. Well, it led him to do things that were darker and darker and more sinister, and he could have no idea where he would end up and what would happen to his family. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, the word says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some 
have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, a desire for more and more can lead us into all kinds of terrible behavior, scheming, overcharging, not paying people what is owed, cheating on taxes, lying, and the list could go on and on. Psalm 62.10 says this, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. It's all right to have riches in our hands, but these riches must not have our hearts. They must not have our hearts. So realize that wanting more and more can lead you down a dangerous and sordid path. Live according to biblical standards. Strive to stay out of debt. Pay what you owe. And if you aren't able to pay, try to come up with a plan and work it out with the person that that you owe it to. Don't utilize sinful business practices to, to increase the bottom line. The classic example of this is the the mechanic or the air conditioner repairman or whoever who who says to the person who has no idea what's really going on, hey, this is wrong and it's going to cost you X amount of dollars, when in reality, they could fix it for 50 bucks. Believers can't live that way. We we can't operate like that. We don't want to lie or stretch the truth to make money or to keep from paying the money that we owe. And we must always make people more important than money. An appetite for more and more and more is going to lead you away from God. It's going to lead you into increasingly sinful behavior. So we've seen that a desire for wealth does lead to terrible deeds. Fifth, recognize the ultimate danger of judgment. Throughout this passage, the unjust rich are warned of the coming judgment of God. In verse 1, the unjust are told to mourn and to wail for the coming misery. And then in this passage, James says several witnesses will be there to testify on the day of judgment against those who had made money their master. In verses 2 and 3, James said that the fleeting nature of the riches would be there to testify as a witness against them. In verse 4, he said the withheld pay of these laborers, as well as the cry of the laborers themselves, they would serve as witnesses against them on the day of judgment. In verse 5, their own fattened hearts, their own self-indulgent lifestyles would serve as a witness against them. In verse 6, their cruel and murderous treatment of others would serve as a witness against them. And then in verse 6, the righteousness of the godly who refused to retaliate. Well, they too would serve as a witness against the unjust wealthy on the day of judgment. I read about a couple, Steve and Sue, whose 25-year marriage had been a good marriage, not a perfect marriage, but, but a good one. They now had two grown children and had a, had a, had a fam- the, the children loved them dearly, had a good family. They were also blessed with, with good financial security, so much so that they began to, to look for a retirement home. They had, they had dreamed of, of living on a lake, and so they began to look for lake uh, properties. And they, they went to one home. Uh, a man named Ben owned this home, and it was, a, it was a great place. He was a recent widower, and they looked, and it was almost exactly what they had dreamed of. And so they began to, to, to kind of plan and to, to look into the possibility. Uh, some time elapsed in the process of, of planning and, and working things out. And then suddenly, they decided, we're, we're going to move forward. And right as they were about to make the purchase, Sue said to Steve, I, I want a divorce. And, and he was just blown away. He was numb. How, 
how could you be talking about this, this house on the lake with me? And then just out of the blue, tell me you, you want a divorce. And she said, well, Steve, this was a recent decision. I haven't been planning this for years and years. There's just another man who's come into my life and, and we're in love and there's no turning back. And he said, what do you mean another man? What are you talking about? And Sue confessed to him that after meeting Ben, they had begun to talk a bit. And they had developed a relationship. And now her marriage of 25 years meant little to her. Well, on the day that she was to leave, Steve walked through the kitchen toward the garage and realizing that she would soon be gone. He said, well, hon, I, I guess this is it. And his voice died down and he began to sob. She felt uneasy. She hurriedly packed her things and she drove up north to, to join Ben. Two weeks after, she moved in with Ben. He fell to the ground and he had a heart attack. And hours later, he was dead. Now, often life isn't exactly like this. Often judgment doesn't come so quickly. It can. But God is patient and God bears with us. But make no mistake, friend. As Sue came face to face with the foolishness of her decisions, you and I will too. We'll come face to face with the reality of our sinfulness. If we want to make money our master, it'll work for a while, but it will not ultimately work. It will not ultimately work. Jesus warned much about the dangers of wealth. In Matthew 19, 23 and 24, he said it's difficult for the wealthy to go to heaven. Why? Because they have so much here. And in reality, most of us fall into that category. We, we don't see our spiritual need because we enjoy so much here. In Luke 12, 16 through 21, Jesus told this parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have enough room to store my crops? I will do this. He said, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see in this parable, the rich man wanted more and more and more. Money had become his master. But Jesus warns against this mindset. The parable reminds us that judgment is coming. Scripture speaks of two kinds of judgment. First, the judgment seat of Christ. We see this, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is where believers stand before the Lord Jesus and our lives are examined. Our deeds are judged and we'll be rewarded for, for our good behavior, for deeds that honored God. But then there is the great white throne judgment. This is seen in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. And in this judgment, all those who have rejected God here on earth well, they'll get what they demanded all of their lives. They'll get eternity without him in a terrible place called hell. James wants us to hear 
and understand how serious this is. How do we escape the allure of wealth? Well, ultimately, we must put our faith in Jesus. You see, God is holy, he's pure, he's righteous, but every one of us is sinful. Every one of us has gone our own way. We've rebelled against God. We've done what we wanted. And our sin has separated us from a God who's holy. But what God did is he loved so much that he sent his son to this earth. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was nailed to the cross and he took the punishment for our sins upon himself. He was buried and he came back to life. And now any person who would call out to Jesus in faith and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to turn away from sin and I want to follow you. Any person who would do that will be saved. The scriptures are clear. How do you, you want to escape the allure of, of what this world lives for, getting more and more and more in pleasure and pampering yourself? Run to Jesus, receive him, turn to him. If you already know Jesus, make sure that that's what your heart is set on, knowing him more getting closer to him, not getting more stuff, more stuff, more stuff, but knowing him more and more and more and more. Let Christ be your master, not money. So we've seen that the day of judgment is coming. I've read about Oscar Schindler. Many of you maybe are familiar with with a movie based on his life. He was a German industrialist during World War II. And when Schindler realized what was being done to the Jews, he came up with a plan to, to try to rescue as many as he could. For money, he would buy Jews to work in in his factory. His factory was supposed to be a part of the German military war machine. On the one hand, he was buying as many Jews as he possibly could. And on the other hand, he was deliberately sabotaging ammunition that was produced in his factory. He entered the war as a wealthy industrialist. And by the end of the war, Schindler was basically bankrupt. In fact, he managed to rescue over 1,000 Jews. When the Germans surrendered, Schindler met with his workers and he declared that at midnight they were all free to go. I've read about a scene in the movie that was apparently very moving. Schindler was telling the financial manager uh, of the plant goodbye. The financial manager was a Jew and also a very close friend. And as he embraced his friend, Schindler sobbed and he said, I I could have done more. And then he, he looked at his car and he said, why did I keep the car? That would have bought 10 Jews. And then he, then he took another small possession. He said, this would have bought one. Why didn't I do more? Well, one day Jesus is going to split that sky open. He's going to return for his own people. And then it will not matter how much money we have in a mutual fund or how many bedrooms we had in our homes. The satisfaction of luxurious vacations and nice cars, all that's going to be gone. What will matter on that day is if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will matter is how we've used our lives, how we've used our possessions and our money for good. Only the eternal investments are going to matter on that day. Will we say when that day comes, oh, if only I would have done more. I should have done more for what really counted, for what really mattered. So do not make money your master. You'll face great danger, the danger of disappearance, the danger of defrauding others, the danger of self-indulgence, the danger of increasingly destructive deeds, and the danger of the coming day of judgment. If you know Jesus, how should you respond to today's passage? Well, ask yourself, is money the master of my life? Do you love money and possessions more than you love the Lord Jesus? 
Do you love money more than you love people? If so, confess that to the Lord and ask him to change your heart. Ask him to give you a desire to love him more than anything in the world to make him the true master of your life. Also, ask yourself if you're being generous with with what God has given you. Even if you have very little, we're still called to give. We're still called to be generous. Are you giving back to God what he's given to you? Are you helping others and ministering to folks who are in need? You see, being generous is a great antidote for greed. Also, live above reproach in business dealings. Use money for God's kingdom, for the good of others, for the spread of the gospel. Use your life and your wealth in a manner that honors God. And you know what? When the day of judgment comes, if we've made the Lord Jesus our master and we've used money in his service, it'll be a great day. It'll be a great day. There'll be great reward. We'll see eternal treasure, treasures that moth and rust cannot destroy. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus, you have a serious problem in front of you. And friend, it has nothing to do ultimately with money. It's a problem with God and it's a problem that money can't fix. It's a problem that nothing can fix save one. And that is the Lord Jesus. You see, if you do not know God, you do not have a relationship with God. If you thought, hey, one of these days I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. God says any sin keeps you from heaven and every one of us qualifies. So what's the solution? No, friend, it's not money. The solution is crying out to Jesus and saying to him, forgive me, I want to know you. And if you do that today, I want you to know that God will will take hold of you and he'll never, ever let you go. And when the day of judgment comes, you need not fear because he's going to say to you, come. The blood of Christ, my son, covers you. Come, enter. Oh, you'll know, you'll know treasure. You'll know eternal treasure. Let's pray.